Hey everybody, welcome to the Talking to Ourselves podcast. I'm Omid Farhang, founder at Majority. My guest today, Mike Cesario, founder and CEO of Liquid Death, hacking the bottled water market with the first ever water brand inspired by heavy metal and punk rock culture that stands in stark contrast to aspirational health and wellness brands and a motto to murder your thirst. Using 100% recyclable aluminum packaging and zero plastic, Mike's evil mission is to make health and sustainability fun and disruptive and the world is falling into his trap. Liquid Death is currently one of the fastest growing non-alcoholic beverage brands ever. Since its inception in 2018, Mike has raised over $125 million in funding. Liquid Death was up over 300% year over year in 2021 and reported about $45 million in top line revenue. Its products are currently sold in close to 30,000 retail locations nationwide, including Whole Foods, 7-Eleven, and Target. From its branding to its marketing, the food and beverage category has never seen anything like Liquid Death. Now, a quick warning, Mike had to take this interview from a coffee shop, so you are gonna hear some background chatter throughout this episode. But man, if you can block out the noise, you'll also hear gems of wisdom from one of the most brilliant and disruptive entrepreneurs in the world today. This is Mike Cesario and I talking to ourselves. What's up, dude? Mike Cesario, how are you, buddy? Good to see you. Yeah, likewise, man. How are you? I'm very good. Mike, I see we, we overlapped uh, in 2009, 2010 at CPB. I was sort of, I was in London for a part of that. Did we, did we overlap on any work? No, we didn't work on anything. It was more like I was a junior and you, I remember at the time, were kind of like this rising star at, at Crispin because you had sold a bunch of cool stuff. And I remember like, to me, like you were a little bit of a mentor to me because I remember you kind of giving, you know, helping me figure out like, a, you know, how to think about a couple of things. I remember you told me the story about how, uh, you know, you were about to drop the like law school application in the mail when you decided to then go into advertising. All right, Mike, we start every episode in the same place. Uh, where are you from? What did your parents do? It's funny, that was the question that Alex Bogusti, or no, Andrew Keller asked me in my Crispin interview. <laughs> it's a good place um, to start. Originally from outside Philadelphia, it, like grew up in Delaware, first half of life, and then grew up in Pennsylvania in high school, not far away. And then, um, yeah, my dad, he was uh, running, he just retired during COVID, but he was uh, president of a company that was like boating supplies and he helped develop like a, a flare because he's like a chemical expert guy. Um, and then my mom, she's a respiratory therapist and she lives in uh, Southern California. Like if you're stuck on a desert island, your only hope is your dad's flare? Yeah, well, on a boat, the thing about their flares that were that no flare had done is they'll still work even if they're soaking wet. Which oh. like there's no, I guess there was no other flare. So that so it's like, yeah, if you're on a stranded on a boat and it's overflowing with water, like that, you can actually use the flare. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a that's a a very useful quality. Okay. What did 12-year-old uh, Mike want to be when he grew up? 12. So that was what, like seventh grade? I think at that time I was still set on I'm gonna be in a band. I'm gonna be a musician. That's what I'm gonna do. Um, that's when I started playing in bands and just was super into, you know punk rock and all that it was like you know sixth grade I was kind of like a lost kid and growing up in Delaware which is like 
one of the, like the worst school systems in the country. Like middle schools, some of them have like metal detectors. <laughs> um, and, it, you know, it was a place where it was like predominantly like, you know, sports culture. There was no skateboarders or anything. And I started skateboarding when I was six. And then late 80s, skateboarding was cool. I had friends that skated, but then everyone quit that stuff to go play sports and, you know, basketball and all that. And like, I just was like, oh, well, no one else does it. So I'm not going to do it anymore. And then I switched schools into Pennsylvania in seventh grade. And it was a completely different world. And it was like, all these kids skated. And I was like, wait, people still skateboard? And they're like, yeah. So I got a skateboard again and got really back into skating. And then that was the year that the Green Day Dookie album came out. And it was like that 90s, like punk kind of resurgence. And I got that stuff. And I was like, yeah, this stuff is awesome. And like Punkarama and like those like Bad Religion and all those like mixtape kind of punk albums. I was just like, inhaling it all in and then like we started a band and and that was kind of the funny thing it was like my intro to design was like I'd always been good at drawing since a little kid um, I would do all the band artwork like designing show flyers and the album stuff and silk screening t-shirts myself you know um, and that was where I kind of got that entrepreneurial like creative thing going where it was like you know, it was always hard writing songs. It was like, that was like the most pain in the ass thing. I always got more excited about, okay, now let's like make the show flyers, <laughs> you know, make make the fun stuff for me. Um, so our bands were never like, you know, amazing. Like we were all, but it was, it was fun. And I didn't even know what I wanted to do. Like, I didn't even know graphic design was a real job in junior year. Like, but the guy I was in a band with, um, his dad was like this award-winning Philadelphia graphic designer. And we practiced at his house in his basement. So I'd always see all like random cool design stuff he was working on in his little office, like prints and things. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. It's like, I feel like I could do that. Um, and then he was like, yeah, yeah. And then it was like, oh, you can be a graphic designer and make like real money. I'm like, oh, no way. Um, so then, yeah, I went to school for graphic design and um, yeah, eventually switched to advertising. But yeah, I was always like, you know, growing up as a punk kid, you know, I was reading like Noam Chomsky in high school when I had like fuck capitalism shirts. And like, you know, I was very, you know, into the, the kind of the, the rebellious spirit. Like we all went to school with a U as people are listening to this, they're like, oh yeah, that's a, uh, that's Jim at my school. That's, that's Chris at my school. Yeah, yeah totally. And, and I think that was part of um, the, the tough part about my career. It's like advertising is both super creative, but it's also super corporate. Like you're making stuff in for giant corporations, often soulless because that's why they're paying an ad agency is they want to be relevant. Um, so it was a tough thing for me because I had such that like creative punk spirit that's why i was drawn to crispin because there was some of that there yeah but i think the reality of like once you go there and you're like oh wait there's so many politics in boardrooms and people that decide what actually gets made and it has nothing to do with like oh you just have the best <laughs> idea or not there's so many other things and it was like you know like oh the first cool campaign we almost sold like something happened and it got killed and then it's like, once I left Crispin, you know, like not being under the 
the reality of, oh, there's no other agencies like this. If publicists in New York is making crappy work for T-Mobile, it's not because there's no one there with good ideas. There's reasons why it's not good. It's not like, so when they recruited me from Crispin, it was like, oh yeah, we're gonna really revamp the creative department. We're gonna make awesome new stuff. It's like, no, because the top guy isn't creative yeah. and every, everything can only be as creative as the top decision maker. That's just reality. Yeah, no one ever recruits great talent by telling them we're gonna maintain the status quo of mediocrity. Sign me up. <laughs> You know, I'm looking at your LinkedIn, your, you know, agency side from 2009 to 2018, starting at CPB, ending as a creative director at Donor. Uh, between sort of full-time and permalance, I count about a dozen jobs in a dozen years. Were you the creative thoroughbred that no agency became? No, I think it was, it was funny. It was like, I left Crispin, yeah. largely just because like the hundred hour week thing was just like killing me. It was just like, this is cool, but not exactly what I thought. And then I got recruited by, you know, publicists. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to go there, make really cool stuff because I'm the Christian guy going there. And it, we didn't make anything remotely cool. So then I'm like, oh, shit, I, I fucked up. I need to go get another better job somewhere. So then I got a job at a place in San Francisco called Eleven. So I was only a publicist for six months when I realized, got to get out of this. Yeah. Um, worked at this agency yeah, called Eleven in San Francisco. Part design agency, kind of run with old school good B guys. Didn't make a ton of cool stuff there either because they were kind of more design focused. So cut to, I'm, I'm three years into my career and the only way to get jobs back at the good creative agencies is what was the last greatest thing you produced in your book? I had nothing for three years because I worked for shitty agencies. So I was begging Goodby, couldn't get couldn't get a job there. Begging Lydie, couldn't get a job there. I think I even tried to get back into Crispin, couldn't get a job there. So all of a sudden I'm stuck. I'm like, oh, I literally squandered my career. Even though I know I'm talented, every recruiter was like, well, you don't really have anything produced in your book. So I, because I had, I filled my book with like fake campaigns to show like, look, I'm smart. And they're like, oh, we only want to see real work. We don't care if it's fake. So it was this weird thing in the industry where I couldn't get a creative job. So I was sort of forced. I'm like, well, the only way I can make the stuff I want to make is I have to make my own product and make marketing for it. And that was like the first thing I actually tried to create entrepreneurial when I worked at the agency in uh, San Francisco was I started a liquor company called Western Grace, where we tried to make brandy cool. And we found a brandy distillery in Northern California, went up there, pitched them this cool PDF of a brand. And they were like, oh, this is cool. We've been making the best brandy in the world for 20 years. And we've been waiting for like the cool guy to come make it cool, you know? So then found some folks from the liquor industry who had built like Hendrix Gin and Sailor Jerry Rum. They thought it was interesting. They came on board. They're like, hey, you need to move to Philadelphia if we're gonna do this. So I went back to Philadelphia and got like the first taste of like the entrepreneurial thing, like creating a liquor company, which is like the hardest, like so much legal red tape, every state is different. Like right. you have to store it in a special warehouse that's certified like, and the liquor game is so ground and pound. It's like tastings at bars, getting bartenders on board. Like it's, and it wasn't about like marketing because you can't just be like, oh, Western Grace Brandy, go buy it because it's like, oh no, every state is different. So who's gonna? It's local and it's field and it's, it's super hands on. Yeah, 
So did that for like two years and ultimately kind of like, you know, butted heads with the business partners I had. And I was just like, hey, you guys take it, you know, from here, you know, I'll take my little piece of vested equity and I'm going to go figure out my next thing. Um, and then I went to work at Chumanot. Now, when I went back to, to Philly to do the liquor company, we had no salaries or anything. So I'm like, oh, I need a day job to pay my rent. So I just took whatever bullshit like job would pay me, not making any cool stuff there. And then, yeah, I ended up like getting fired from that job because they saw that like, oh, I'm just like, I don't give a shit, <laughs> really. Um, and then once I like was fired from my job and then shortly after like split with my business partners it was like shit okay what, what am I going to do now and then um, I went to work for um, Humanot in Tennessee if you, sure. if you know yeah Dave, David Littlejohn yeah. um, and then that was where finally I got back into making like actual cool creative stuff for the first time in like a long time and like we started doing the first like funny marketing for the organic industry and like that was kind of what unlocked the idea for liquid death for me it was like once we did this save the bros campaign for this organic protein shake it was like oh yeah how come the health food industry doesn't make funny irreverent stuff it's only junk food soda alcohol candy chips fast food like they do all the funny irreverent stuff health food stuff is very quiet and responsible and you know so that was like the big unlock for me and that's when I started thinking about like, okay, well, I know I'm an entrepreneur at heart, like going through that liquor thing helped me realize like, I really like this more than I like being a cog in a machine at a big place. So I was always thinking about what's next. Part of it was like, alcohol was the most regulated thing on the planet. The next thing I do is gonna have way less regulations. <laughs> so that's like how we kind of got to water. Like, oh, there's no ingredient sourcing. There's no, you know, it, it was a very simple thing. And, you know, I drank a lot of water. Um, I didn't drink energy drinks. And all my friends that were in bands that were sponsored by Monster, they're like, we don't drink this stuff. Like, we just take the money because who else is offering metal bands money? Um, but no one drinks it. So that was how it all kind of started to fuse into this idea of like, oh, well, everybody drinks water. It's the healthiest thing you can drink. Most people don't drink enough of it. Oh, it turns out water, bottled water is the biggest beverage category over soda. It's 22 billion a year in the US. And it's all the same. It's like, it's like, wait a second, wait a second. And then it's like, oh yeah, plastic is this huge issue. Cans are infinitely recyclable. Oh, that's cool. Oh, and let's make it look like something bad that you're not supposed to have and make it good. And it was just like, I just was working on this like in my spare time. And again, it was like, I, I kind of knew I squandered my creative career bit, even though we made some cool stuff at Humanot, like I still was applying at Wyden and they were saying no. Um, and I was still trying to get back into some of those bigger creative shops and they still weren't having it. So then I got offered a job to be the creative director for street league skateboarding in LA, which was like, oh, wait a second. It's not an ad agency, but at least I love skateboarding. Yeah. Like to do creative stuff around something I love. It's like, even if it's not the most creative stuff, at least I could be happy. You know, I'm not doing college university marketing or any you know whatever so then did that for a bit and was still kind of developing liquid death on the side and then got fired from that job um because they're kind of like uh 
we realize we can't really afford a big creative person like you. We just need to hire like a former pro skater that can call his homies to go film skate tricks. <laughs> like we don't have money to do these cool big ideas that you want to do. And they can't even, they, they couldn't even wrap their heads around spending $30,000 on a website. So it's like, yeah, I'm probably not going to be that valuable to you guys. Um, and that was run by Rob Deerdeck. And um, I really liked Rob. He was a smart guy. Um, and then, you know, I just bounced around little freelance jobs um, and then worked at VaynerMedia where I got like a whole, which was, I was hired by Steve Babcock, yeah. Crispin, who became the chief creative officer there. And he was like, hey, Mike, come in and be a CD in LA. And that was really where I got a whole new respect for social and like how powerful social media was and Gary's whole point of view on, you know, media and all of that. And then, yeah, it was just like, finally then Liquid Death was becoming more and more real on the side. And then I was at Donor when it became real. And then I launched it on Facebook before we ever had real product because I knew that just the idea of Liquid Death, nobody is writing me a check for that. Oh, hey, I want to put water in a can that looks like beer called Liquid Death and put a skull on it. It was like, oh, that's never going to work. The customer's going to be so confused. Like, this is silly. And like, nobody got it in the beginning. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to pretend like it's real. I hope it's okay to, to divulge this. You tell me if you need to take, if I need to take stuff. But like, I have a LinkedIn note from you in 2018 or so. And you're like, hey, I'm Mike. And we work together at Crispin and I've got this idea. And you know, it's, 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 uh, it's water in a can. It's liquid death. And I remember thinking to myself, man, like, I personally think this is a very good idea, but all I all I know from watching like Shark Tank is creating a successful drink line is impossible. And it's really great that you're doing this. Best of fucking luck to you, you know? And like, and I'm sure you heard, you heard a lot of that. Well, a couple of things on Liquid Death. First of all, when did you know that was the name? Was there a backup name? I knew it was the name in, summer of 2017 where i was like you know okay hey we're gonna start doing can design stuff now and um yeah i had a bunch of names because it was funny the original headspace i was in was like okay it's gonna look like beer which is what's gonna make it cool and fun to walk around with and right. people to be like look pounded a beer and it's like no it's just water so first i started thinking more like oh how would a craft beer company brand or name this you know so and, and you know i think like one of the names i had was like southern thunder you're like you know something that sounded like some crap you know craft beer thing but then like i you know i was like wait a second like let's take a step back like i'm going to have zero dollars to market this or pay for eyeballs what is a name that like when it's on the shelf we're almost guaranteeing someone's taking their phone out and taking a photo of it and posting about it for free. And then when I really held strong to that kind of bar, all the names started dying really quickly. I'm like, oh, they want to be like, oh my God, Southern Thunder, what's that? It's like, no. So then I tried to, you know, it was just trying to go through like, hey, what are really like thumb stopping on social names or what are really like, if someone sees it on the shelf, they're like, what is that? And then, yeah, liquid death was was just one of the first ones that. Well, and and good ideas. I have this theory that like good ideas are obvious in hindsight. You know, 
the Dos Equis most interesting man. A only after you see it do you think like, oh yeah, what else could that have even been? That's sort of the magic trick of a great idea, especially in our business. And I think, I think you know, Liquid Death is, uh, is no different. You know, a water brand that looks and feels and behaves unlike any water brand in the cooler that is, you know, ergonomically designed to stop you in, the, in your tracks. Of course, that's going to be disruptive. Of course, that's going to work. But we know that now. But before we knew that, um, what was some of the feedback that you got from really smart investors and otherwise really brilliant people who brought products to market before that, that kind of uh, were memorable, memorable responses? Um, well, one thing I remember before we actually had real product, I mean, it was still, it was in the process of getting made. Um, but we got in fight. Well, cause we got some press around the video we launched. Um, because before we had product, we made a commercial and we made it look like she was pouring out a liquid death, but it was really just a Miller light can that you could only see the gold lid of that was filled with water. Um, cause we didn't have real cans. Right. Um, that video ended up getting like 3 million views on this Facebook page that we created for liquid death before we had a product that made it seem real. And we got, I think some ad week press actually as a result of that video, even though we weren't a real brand. Um, and then we got invited to do, um, this BevNet new beverage showdown. So BevNet's like the beverage trade magazine that's like the biggest one. And they do this like, you know, these new emerging beverage brands, like the founders go on stage at this like conference and you pitch, you have like two minutes or something to like pitch your brand. And then they have like a panel of experts that um, will give you feedback and then they pick like, okay, in the first round, which ones get cut, which ones move forward. And then ultimately they pick one. And on the panel of the one that we did, it was like, um, this beverage CPG um, venture capital investor from Boulder um, that, you know, they backed a couple of these like, you know, natural kind of start, you know, CPG startup brands. There was this guy who ran the biggest non-out distributor in New York City. And then there was this guy who ran Coca-Cola's VEB thing where they like, it was like an incubator for brands. And, you know, I went up, I pitched my two minute liquid death kind of thing. And I remember like it was, you know, and these were the experts and they were like, like, you know, the VC was like, uh, she was like, now I don't get it, but I'm not a millennial. So, you know, I don't know. I don't get it, but I'm, I'm not a millennial. Like, okay. And then the Coke guy is like, yeah, we found that irreverent brands just don't work. Like they just never last, like irreverent brands, they just don't work, they don't last. So I'm like, hmm, okay. And then we didn't get picked to go to the next round. And then it was like, you know, it's a bummer because like you hold that feedback, you know, as like, wow, they're experts, like they know. Um, and then it was like the brand that won the whole thing was called Simply Supreme. It was like cold soup in a bottle. I don't even think they're still in business. And it's like, you know, the more I looked at stuff, like going back and look, like I would look back and like, let's look at the other new beverage showdowns. What brands won and what are they doing now? And it was like, looking back at it, it was almost like winning this thing was a higher predictor of failure than it was actually success. 
and it was like that gave me a little more confidence to be like oh yeah like maybe like these guys clearly don't get it um and that's why like the first investors that really understood the brand in our first venture capital firm that came on was called science inc and they were the ones that backed dollar shave club from the very beginning when mike dubin just had a funny video and a warehouse of weight razors and came to these guys like hey i'm trying to do this they're like yeah this is cool and that was kind of their thing was how do we back direct to consumer CPG brands that are trying to disrupt like a big category via DTC. So we kind of fit into that pretty well. And they totally got the brand and got what we were trying to do. And they've been, you know, super tight partners with us from day one and they still are now. And um, that was really, it, it, it was like the beverage industry was too old school in their thinking to understand true innovation in the space. Whereas like the tech world, they got it a lot faster. So a lot of our early investors came from tech and not beverage. And we've always had tech and forward thinking as a part of our brand since the beginning. Um, that, that's sort of been the path. It's really cool to hear sort of the path to the launch of the product, because as I see, you know, working at all these different agencies and you talk about kind of just, you know, you're in the wrong environments and you're a guy who's super creative and you have all these ideas, but you're like, you're just, you haven't found your home. Maybe Humanot was the closest you had come to finding your home. And you realize the journey and, and like you're describing, you know, reaching out to these agencies and them like, you know, not answering your calls and telling you repeated no's. And it's really easy to get discouraged and get down on yourself and go like, maybe I just don't have what it takes and all that. And, and then all of a sudden you realize like the way to find your home in your case was just to build your own home. Um, as you start making your way into these kind of, you know, VC rooms and, and these like, you know, higher profile rooms that maybe your career hadn't totally prepared you for, were you grappling with kind of like the imposter syndrome thing or had the previous experience uh, with the Brandy Company kind of helped, you know, just maybe uh, lower some of that, lower some of that, um, that doubt in yourself by the time Liquid Death started to kind of really incubate? Well, I think it was really like when we partnered with science, it was basically when we launched the Facebook page, we had no product, video went bananas, page had more followers than Aquafina after maybe like four or five months. Used that to raise a small friends and family round, which was probably when I reached out to you because I was reaching out to various like bosses I had in advertising that were probably in high level creative positions where they probably had some amount of income where they could invest 10 grand, 20 grand in something that they thought was cool. And then cobbled together this round to actually make the physical product. And then once I had the physical product and showed it to science and they were like, oh yeah, this is rad. And we did more of like a partnership where it was like, hey, Mike, we want you to be creative and do all this and we we can help you with raising money and all you know all the like more executive corporate stuff that you don't know and that's why we're going to be a great partner for you because i think they knew there was something special here and they wanted it before i went somewhere else like hey we'll be a great partner for like raising money and all that and they have been so it was like they were sort of like my mba training where they were teaching me this is what an investor deck should be. This is what investors give a shit about. This is what they don't. This is how you want to position it. And, you know, I really learned kind of as we went with like a really great partner, like, yeah, 
I didn't have them as a partner and I just got thrown into an investor meeting, like the deck would have been totally wrong. <laughs> right. uh, I probably would have focused on the wrong things and, you know, probably never would have been able to raise as much as we've been able to raise, um, you know, today. So, um, your, your, um, your, your, your logo and your, your iconography is unlike anything I would say in the history of the drink category. There's, you know, I see elements of metal and elements of Adult Swim and elements of Garbage Pail Kids. I don't know if I'm imagining that, but maybe just tell me a little bit about the design language of the brand and how that came to life. Yeah, so when we were, when I, we were designing the can, I was like, I want it to feel like classic cheap beer. So we had like a whole reference thing of like Coors Light, Colt 45, you know, Modelo, like all these brands, and you kind of start to see that they're all kind of the same. It's like, oh, it's a white can with gold and blue. And because beer was brought to the US by Germans, a lot of the like classic beer companies use like German black letter fonts and, you know, old school German based stuff. So they all sort of use the same kind of, so it was like kind of easy to be like, oh yeah, we're gonna use like a black letter classic German beer font for the logo. And it's like, okay, we just need a little twist that gives it some edge, which actually funny enough, came from feedback from Boguski. Cause like early on, I brought it to him and he was like, oh, this is really fucking cool. And he kind of was helping me think through a couple things. And originally Liquid Death, it had like a, like a ship, like a, pirate ship looking thing that was about to get swallowed with water so it was more like the literal interpretation of like water can actually be deadly and kill you right and i remember alex was like yeah it kind of feels a little bit like pirate water <laughs> right now and i don't think you want it to be pirate water and we had this logo that will this artist drew for us that we were using for something else but i didn't really think of it like a logo i thought of it more as like a t-shirt like this cool skull with liquid death so i tried when he gave me that feedback i tried sticking the skull in the can and i showed it to him and he was like oh yeah that's way better it feels way more punk like it doesn't it feels like you know crazier and i'm like yeah yeah no you're, you're totally right and that's kind of how we we landed on. And that's interesting to hear because as you say, it's way more punk and you kind of go back to your upbringing and your background and what you were interested in before you knew this was a profession. It's like, it's also like the journey of this product becoming more like you, you know, it's more of what you want. It's more of what you would find interesting. It's more of what, what would it, you know, I think we have this idea when we like want to create a product or an, or an ad or a campaign that gets the attention of everybody that you, you design it broadly as broadly as possible. And in fact, when you think about the best stand-up comedy or the best music, the, the way that it attracts a broad audience is a contradiction. It does it by being really, really intimate and really personal and really specific. Um, so like you, I mean, when you look at that thing, do you like, do you see yourself on that fucking can? Are you the skull? Are you the skull? Yeah. Yeah. It's like someone gave me the, the, the feedback about being an entrepreneur. It was, or yeah, yeah, it was this guy I knew in Philadelphia who was like 1580 on his SATs, went to Drexel Business School, like insanely brilliant dude, was like running some like marketing team right out of college doing something. 
And then he quit and literally became like a DJ that was throwing raves. Like he almost built the underground rave scene in Philadelphia, living out of his car as this brilliant dude that could probably have any job he wanted just because that was his passion. I remember his, he had this label that he made and his label tagline was like, uh, dig deeper, sound better, care more. And we had this conversation around like, all the advice he gives to people is like, you're not gonna figure out what everyone else wants. You just have to make something that you care more about than anybody else cares about. You understand more than anybody else understands and you're totally happy eating, sleeping, breathing, whatever this thing is like every day where it's, you're not just doing it to make money. It's like, even if you weren't making money, like you would do this. So, and, and I've heard similar things from other entrepreneurs where it's like, yeah, like figure out what it is about you that is unique and different that you know, like, so it was like, yeah, when it came to like punk and alternative culture, it's like, yeah, I know more about that than the average person by a long shot. So it was like, yeah, I focused in on that and it made, it makes building a company way easier because the decisions are so easy. It's like, oh, when I do that, yeah. You've okay. been training your entire life to, <laughs> to, to blossom right. this company, unbeknownst to you. Right, um, yeah, exactly. I want to talk about the effect of marketing on the sort of arrival of the brand in culture. Uh, but before we do that, let's just kind of go through a couple of greatest hits. Maybe just like, give me a minute on each of these things. You know, what was it? And, and maybe a, a story about the inception of it or something you remember about it. So, you know, the first one that comes to mind for me is Cutie Paludis. What is Cutie Paludis? So Cutie Paludis were a line of sort of adult stuffed animals that were cute little sea creatures that were completely mutilated by single-use plastic. And um, we made a commercial that felt like one of those 90s throwback kids toy commercials that is super like you know bizarre like it's from some dystopian future which was kind of like the point of it and then we actually offered these things for sale at 75 bucks a piece and we've sold a couple thousand of them like you know to date as like a collectible um and the video you know got tons of views picked up by all this different press and um yeah it was we actually worked with um a small agency called Callen out of Austin, yeah. um, run by Craig Allen. Um, and, you know, early, especially in the early days of Liquid Death, it was like friends I had from the ad world that I, you know, got along well with that had started their own little boutique shops. Like we worked with them. And of course, like, you know, when you're a boutique shop, they're usually paying the bills with not fun clients because you're not getting the cool, awesome clients when you're some small little tiny agency. So I think they were stoked to like, get to work on something that like was maybe going to like make a big creative splash and be a part of it because they didn't have too many clients that would let them do that. So, you know, we would work with them on ideas, but you know, it was, we always established like, Hey, this is a very different client relation agentship. Like we've got creative execution ability on our side. That's probably better than the juniors you can afford to put on sure. this project for what we're paying. So it was always like, Hey, give us ideas. And then the execution is going to be way more of a, collaboration it's not just like oh you're the creative people we're the business people it was very much like a collaborative process because you know will carsola who drew our skull who's been like a creative partner to us since the beginning he wrote 
directed, created the adult swim show, Mr. Pickles. So he spends eight hours a day in a writer's room writing thousands of jokes to make like a super tight 11 minute episode. So his ability to write funny stuff is like far beyond what like a marketing copywriter can write, you know, when it comes to these things. So it was like, I think the agency's original name for these things was uh, Plastic Pals. And I was like, ah, it's not that fun. So I said, hey, Will, give me, like I literally text him. I'm like, Will, what are some names for this thing? And you know, two hours later, he texts me this whole list of ridiculous things and Cutie Paludis was one of them. I was like, yeah, that's it. And it's like, it was more of an adult swim writer mind that got to that thing, you know? that um, doesn't even think like a marketer. Um, and then, yeah, we, we kind of, um, work with them to actually like produce the spot and um yeah work you know worked with a third-party company to figure out how to actually get these stuffed animals made like yeah. hey how and it becomes this great expression of the, the the purpose behind the the um the arresting branding and the noise of it which is you know like it's water in a can and that's way better for the environment it's reducing plastic pollution which really sort of anchors the brand in something quite serious and quite noble um, and gives you permission to be as outrageous as you want to be for a good cause. Um, it's funny you talk about working with your friends at boutique agencies because, you know, actually a lot of those places don't have huge staffs. And so they probably embrace the idea of like, you know, Mike is like the senior most creative on this project now and we don't have to pay his salary. Like what a gift that actually like we get this sort of free member of the creative team. Um, and uh, so I, I I think there is sort of a new era of, of smaller agencies and you have more, I mean, I don't consider you the, obviously the classic kind of agency side turned client side. You're, you're very much your, your own unique story, but you see way more people who used to work at agencies working at brands now. And so it's a little bit less of that. Like he was the finance guy of the month, three months in a row. So they made him the head of marketing, you know? Um, okay. So that's cute. That's cutie Paluti. So let's just go through a couple of these. The next one is, uh, I'm sorry if these are in no particular order, but I asked you if you used the killer baby namer to name your baby at the beginning of this podcast. What is the killer baby namer? That was a, I forget if there was a particular reason we did that or it was just a fun idea. But we did that, um, we partnered with the Humanot as an agency, um, which was a really easy, easy thing. And, um, yeah, I think it was sort of one of these things where we were like, hey, just give us a ton of cool ideas. And like, this was like one of the ideas they had that was just a random thing. We we're like, oh, that's really fun. And it kind of stemmed out of this idea of like doing something that you wouldn't expect a heavy metal brand to do. It was like, oh, they're going to do a thing around naming babies. Like that doesn't feel very metal, but let's do it in like this metal kind of way. And uh, yeah, the idea was, hey, um, you know, the name you give your child actually has a real impact on like the career choices they, they have and like how people treat them in school, you know, all these things. So I was like, let's create this like baby name generator that gives kids these really badass metal sounding names. So like when, when you were trying to like come up with a name, like come up with a name for your kid, you can just use this thing. And it was like, you know, murder face Kilgore, <laughs> uh, you know, and all, all these, these funny things. And then it was like, we said, hey, if you, if you actually named your baby this, we'll, 
supply them with free water for the first 18 years of their life. Um, which I don't think anyone actually did. But no one took you up on it? <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. All right. So that's the, that's the killer baby namer. Um, you did, my personal favorite was greatest hates, which is, you know, your brand elicits big feelings, both positive and negative. You took all the negative comments, you turned it into two heavy metal albums. Is that a good description of, of greatest hates? So the first album was a heavy metal album, greatest hates volume one. That was a metal album. And just to give credit, you know, we worked with, um, my buddy, Matt Heath and his agency party. My buddy too. Uh, yeah, I love that guy. Um, and then, uh, yeah, that was something they came up with where it was like, hey, what if we turned hate comment into like metal songs? And then that was a great example of like, great idea from the agency. They would not know how to execute that on the highest level. On our side, we've got the guy who was the basis for Rob Zombie that works on our lifestyle marketing team <laughs> and manages some of the biggest metal bands. And he's like, oh, I got this dude who plays every instrument, plays in this really well-known metal band, and he'll write and record the whole album for seven grand because he, he plays all the instruments in his home studio and it was during COVID. And these guys weren't touring. So it was like, oh shit, yeah. Like, So he made a super legit metal album. And like all we had to do was we found all the hate comments and we just cobbled them together into like short little song lyrics. So there was like 10 songs that were just like, you know, three or four hate comments each. And we just gave him those as a word doc. He's like, cool. And then he hired this singer from this other metal band called Arsis to come do all the vocals. And um, he was like, oh, hey, uh, we can get a legit metal vocalist if you guys have like an extra, like, you know, 400 bucks. We're like, yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, I heard the album for the first time and it was like, it was the proudest moment of liquid. Like when I heard that, how good it was, it was like such a magical moment because it was like, that's truly like, it's not marketing, you know, it was like legit art. And um, got, so then, yeah, we, we pressed vinyl of it, thousand records sold out, um, you know, send it out to all the metal mags. And like, we got great reviews where people were being like, one of the best metal albums of the year is from a water company. <laughs> Um, and, uh, yeah, it was a really, got a really great response. And, you know, th then after that was hugely successful, it was like, well, we could literally do 10 of these in like different genres of music. So the next step the you know, a year later we said, okay, let's make volume two, but this time let's make it a punk album instead of a metal album. And it, the punk one actually is my favorite now because in the metal one, the guy's like growling you can't really understand so much what he's saying in the punk album they're singing and harmonizing internet hate and it's almost funnier right. <laughs> that way you know and um, again same thing it was like on our team we had um this girl jen who sings for this um pretty big pop punk band called the bomb pops works for us and she's friends with all these iconic punk dudes and she's so friendly and nice that everybody just wants to like help her out and she put together this like super group of like people from some of my favorite bands i grew up listening to like annie flag and alkaline trio and the lawrence arms and they all got together for like three days in a studio in la and they wrote this whole like you know 11 song punk album with the hate comments 
And it was great because they were like, this is the most fun we've had making an album in a long time. Because when you take lyrical content out of the song making process, it's so much easier, you know, because you're so, wait, what are the right words? Right. Like, is this going to come off as late, you know? But it was like, the lyrics were already there. The pressure, like, the pressure of the poetry had been removed. Removed, yeah, right. And uh, yeah, and I think in most things, when people have fun, they make better stuff. And it was funny, like the one guy, Brendan from the Lawrence Arms, who actually works for us now as a copywriter, you probably know his stuff. He created the Nihilist Arby's Twitter account. You ever yeah. seen that? that yeah. yeah. One of the greatest, yeah, he's one the of the greatest things on the internet. Totally. And he is the singer of a famous punk band out of Chicago called the Lawrence Arms. And he created Nihilist Arby's and now he works for us as a writer. And he was like, he's like, I'm still trying to come to grab, grapples with like, the best music I've made in years is for this stupid water project, <laughs> you know, like, but yeah. So then we did that. We did the same thing. We pressed vinyl, um, sold out of those, um, you know, we put it all on Spotify too. And it's like, it's funny, like we're a water company. And even now, like we haven't launched the greatest haste album in over a year. And we still average like almost 3000 listeners a week on Spotify. You know, as a water company, just people listening to those two albums that we put out. And now we're trying to figure out what do we want to do for volume three? Which should be, you know, and we'll have more resources this time too to maybe even go bigger with like who's... Hey man, Danny Brown kind of merges like hip hop and punk. You know, I mean, a Liquid Death hip hop album would be very unexpected. Just throwing that out there. Yeah, we're thinking like... A Liquid Death Greatest Hates like R&B album would be yeah. pretty funny. Yeah, like genuine. <laughs> Sad, soulful singing, <laughs> just like rather, you know, yeah. Hey, uh, and, then, and then one more, because I, you know, I want to sort of talk about the effect of these things, but I would have to think sort of the culmination of the childhood dream. Tony Hawk, investor in the brand. You guys do Hawk Blood Deck. What is Hawk Blood Deck? So yeah, Tony came in as an investor and ambassador and you know we pitched him a couple different ideas for like a video we wanted to do with him and he got most excited sorry to interrupt you but like yeah. I, yeah. you know i i partner with shaq shaq was a childhood hero of mine he's i don't get intimidated by celebrities anymore but he, it's still just i don't act totally normal when i'm around the guy because i have a lot of like childhood shit tied up in him are you able to act normal around tony hawk as a kid who grew up a skater it's funny, mostly, but yeah, it is still like, there, it, there's a slight like tension to it just because, yeah, it's like, and especially me, it was like my first real skateboard that I got at age seven was a Tony Hawk skateboard that I picked out. And I actually have that graphic tattooed on my side. So like he really was like from the earliest, most impressionable age who I thought was just like my- It was God. Super yeah, in the 90s, yeah, Tony Hawk was right. God, yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, it, it, it is, uh, it, it still is, but it's great because I go down and to his like office headquarters and skate the vert ramp with him. And now it's like, I'm learning how to skate 12 foot half pipes again. And like, he's kind of teaching me like kind of how to do it. And like, you know, it's, it's and then, you know, other pro skaters like Andy McDonald show up and now he's a part of the brand and like, I'm like, they're skating with these guys and they're like teaching me how to skate. I'm like, what happened in life? How did I get here? Um, 
but it was, it was really cool. But the idea was that we were going to um, draw blood from Tony Hawk, mix it into the red ink that we were going to use to silkscreen a limited run of liquid death Tony Hawk skate decks. And um, Tony was really excited about the idea because it was something that Kiss did in the late 70s. And Tony grew up in the 70s. So he was like, oh yeah, he's like, that's the same thing that Kiss did in the 70s where like they put their own blood in this ink that they printed a Kiss comic book with. He's like, and I remember like how cool that was. So it kind of was like this homage to this like 70s Kiss thing. And uh, yeah, we sold the skate decks for like 500 bucks a piece and they sold out in 10 minutes. And uh, it got, you know, just went absolutely bananas on the internet. It was something like 300 press mentions. And then what was funny was the, the uh, rapper Lil Nas X. Yeah. Um, he released with that brand Mischief this like shoe that had like satanic passages on it and iconography and it's supposed to have like real human blood like in the soul and the reason they did that was because when Lil Nas X came out as gay a bunch of his fans backlashed against him and were like you're going to hell you're going to hell so he kind of as like a tongue-in-cheek response took on this like satanist kind of thing and America is terrified of Satan like in a religious country like everyone freaked out like how dare you like and it was this huge like backlash against him so when he saw the tony hawk board thing he commented he commented on some post that like a rap publication did about the board saying uh nah he like they said what do you think of this tony hawk blood deck thing and he jokingly said nah he tweaking and because he got so much flack for human blood thing he, he was trying to make a point like oh why does he as a black guy get this backlash but it's okay for tony hawk now i think there was a lot more going on there we didn't have a satanist thing behind our thing and that's a very sensitive subject for people but it then created this whole instagram meme where everybody started commenting nah he tweaking on posts and it was taking over instagram where instagram's social account had to acknowledge hey there's this nahi tweaking thing going on but it's not hackers or whatever it is and then all these news articles started coming out about oh nas and tony hawk are beefing like and i actually had met Lil nas x because a, a friend i know was good friends with his producer and they had this cool production house studio in la and they invited me over. So I met him and they drank liquid death and they're all super cool. So I knew it wasn't a thing. And we talked to their manager and they're like, oh yeah, no, he doesn't have anything issue with Tony Hawk. Like he was just joking. And the internet took it as like, oh, it's this beef. So we said, hey, let's get Lil Nas X and Tony Hawk together to do something. So then we sent Lil Nas X to Tony Hawk's like Burt Ramp and they filmed this funny thing together. And then we released that thing and it just kind of gave it this whole other brand so it was this weird sort of culture yeah it's amazing you put something out and then you sort of based on the reaction it turns into this cultural theater where you're just sort of adapting to what's happening and you're kind of trying to be opportunistic and 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 toe the line without crossing the line um and 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 all, and all of these pieces of work listen a lot of the people who are listening to this as i bring it up they already know it and this stuff you know it all went viral and it all got tons of press and tons of views and um, 
but it's just great to hear you talk about it and kind of reminisce about it. And, you know, what, as you recall, working at an agency, one of the toughest things to do with some brands is to convince them that making their brand more famous will make their, their sales go up. Like that there's a, that there's a direct connection between the love of the brand and the sales of the product. So, you know, for, I guess you can't speak for all brands, but for your brand, how direct is the linkage between a viral video with millions of views and media impressions and actual sales? Like do, do the, do the sales spikes correlate exactly with the attention spikes? Sometimes. Yeah. But the, 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 you know, the severity of how much it's affected can vary. So like, for instance, when we first got the first big press bump about liquid death, we had only launched on the internet, you know, and we weren't doing a ton of marketing and we were selling a bunch from the website. And then we launched, I don't know if you saw the cart liquid death cartoon commercial that we did yeah, where it's like that can headed guy, like cutting people, murdering thirst. Once that came out, that got a bunch of press where like, it wasn't just because of the video, it was because it was introducing this brand liquid death. So the video was part of it, but the conversation was more about canned water called liquid death. Is this okay? And it was like CNBC, Bill Maher did a thing on it on real time on HBO. Like the, as you know, as a sports guy, one of the biggest sports podcasts, pardon my take, they did a whole piece on liquid death and it was actually in the title of the podcast it was like lebron james something something and we're all in on liquid death and it was like when that came out and everything else came out like we saw sales jump like 300 percent in like a day or more but it was also just because we you know sales were still small then and all of a sudden you have this moment but now that we're big and we're already selling a ton those bumps don't seem like they're 300 percent anymore because we're already so massive but you still see bumps yeah um, as we do it and, and we and for us we also realize that like as we become more of a retail brand and not a d2c brand it's not so much of a like marketing becomes less of a direct driver like you can run you know the most viral thing ever people don't run out of their houses and run to the stores and go buy it Right. right. D2C, it, there's a little more of a direct thing where it's like, oh, impulse, I can order on Amazon or I can buy on a website. So awareness becomes a bigger thing where it's like, you know, we don't look like water. And that's the success of why the brand is so successful is because we don't look like water. We look like beer. The tricky then part about that is people who have no idea about the brand, you see it in the store. It's like, Oh, liquid death. I don't need beer today. I'm, I'm going to go to my next thing. Right. So awareness, like we're learning, it's like, Hey, the more people know about the brand and know that it's water, then when they go in the store and see it, it's like, Oh, there's that funny water I've heard about. And you're way closer to converting them than having to like someone going totally blind. Oh, liquid death. What's that? I'm going to pick it up. Oh, it's water that's cool. Like yeah. that's harder to do. So yeah, we're definitely like a lot of our focus on some of these viral things now is like, how do we, cause we're selling insane amounts of liquid death, like outselling all these other water brands in almost every retail that we're in. And it's like maybe 6% of people before they walk into the store actually have heard about liquid death and know it's water. 
So, you know, like our investors look at, what do you think your sales are going to be when 50% of people walking into the store know about liquid debt and know it's water, you know? Yeah. And I, I mean, anecdotally, I can tell you, like, we got it as a novelty for our six and five-year-old kids. And so, you know, the novelty, you know, is enjoyed in that, that first or, or second, you know, interaction with the product. But then you start to see like the longevity, it, like with our kids, like it has become a treat, you know? And it's like, my son will come in from the trampoline and he'll be like, he'll see sweaty. And he's like, oh, it's like, hey son, you want a liquid death? And it's like, for some reason, he just categorizes it as something different and more special than water. And he likes the way it feels in his hand. And by the way, he's never even seen a, a like a Miller Lite can before. So, um, so I'm, I'm guessing what I'm describing anecdotally, you're seeing at scale, which is like people buy it for the novelty and then whether their kids are just into the brand or for whatever reason, they like what it, how it looks in their fridge. You know, once, once you buy one, you're going to buy more. Yeah. I think there's, yeah, there's sort of two things. It's like one, what we, we hear from parents constantly, like, I mean, I'd say maybe a hundred messages every two months or so. It's like, oh my God, liquid debt, you finally got my kid excited to drink water instead of soda. Yeah. Like, I almost like have to tell them like they can't have it, but they would never drink water before. Like the kids, they want juice, they want soda. But just because the thing feels cool or, you know, than what they're used to, like they, they, they drink water. And it's like, you know, it's a story that we tell a lot of retailers like, hey, it's not about, oh, is mom who shops in the water section, like, does she identify with the brand? It's like, no, she's buying it for their ki- for her kids in a lot of scenarios as a start. And um, that's a great story for us to tell because it's like, oh, we're bringing a completely new demo into premium water. Because before us, like, you probably weren't buying Fiji for your six-year-old, right. you know? You are buying liquid death, which is, you know, same price point kind of thing. So that's been a big part of our story is like, hey, yeah, we're bringing a very new demo into premium water. Um, that's like a big part of our story. Well, and the other part about the, the, the spirit of the marketing is, you know, I've heard you describe the brand as a professional wrestler. Like, what do you mean by that? It's like everybody knows that professional wrestlers are theater and fake but they still like to champion it and pretend like it's real. You know, it's like, no one thinks the undertaker is actually a dead guy that, you know, they get that it's like, no, it's a character. It's a fun thing. And it's fun to support and get behind something that feels like a character. Whereas the beverage industry is probably one of the most literal in the world. And I don't know why that is. Maybe it's just because the logistical, mountain to climb of starting a beverage company and figuring out manufacturing and just distribution. It takes like a business MBA kind of person to start those companies and they're not creative people. So they think very rationally, like what's the proprietary ingredient that my thing has? You have to put all the benefits on the can. You have to like say what it is. And it's like, I don't think you have to do that. And most other industries don't do that. Um, It's like, imagine if they marketed movies by saying, has this many action sequences. <laughs> right. <This> many, <laughs> uh, no, it, make, it makes sense. The, the professional wrestler thing makes sense. And I think ultimately what it becomes is it, it becomes a more sophisticated relationship with your audience, you know, where it's like, like the same is true. You don't think about sophistication when you think about wrestling, but it's like, well, if I know that you're playing a character and you, and you know that you're playing a character, 
remain committed to the character and I come and cheer or jeer for you as if this is real, then like, like we are just connecting on a different level of intimacy than, than, and then that's unlike anything else. And I think that's probably what it feels like for the kind of, kind of for the people who love the brand the most is it feels like, yeah, like this brand is my ultimate warrior. And I get that the marketing is like not this sort of literal expression of ultimately what is high quality water in a can that lowers plastic pollution. Yeah, and, and that's always the pushback we've got. It's like the people who don't get it, like they take it literally. Like the comments we, you know, the social hate comments are like, who would ever name a beverage death? I'm not drinking that, Pat. Right. You know, yeah. and it's like, but it's like, yeah, yeah, you don't get it. I think that's the other cultural thing that's happening. It's like, I remember doing these presentations at agencies to brands where it's like, in the modern era now, like, what's cool is not the tough guy thing that was cool in like the 90s, you know? It's not like, oh, who's the fucking rapper with the nicest car and the most women? And like, it's like, no, for especially for the youth of today, it's like, cool is like, it's more about like ideas, like who's the next Mark Zuckerberg? Like who made like the craziest app? Like it's, it, it's less about like, and look at like the rise of the influencer. It's like not good looking YouTube stars are bigger than actual like supermodel celebrities now because there's like, it, it's more about like ideas and what you're doing and, and that kind of a thing. So I think in this world of like, smarts are kind of like the thing to brag about almost that like liquid death when you get it you feel like you're in on something right and someone else doesn't get it right and that's it's, it's exclusivity but based on an understanding rather than price you know yeah. it's not like oh this supreme shirt is exclusive because only a couple people can afford 120 dollars for a t-shirt this is like exclusive because only certain people get the joke and the humor it's the genius of like it's an inside joke but it's an inside joke that tens of millions of people are invited to be on the inside of, right? Um, right, yeah. So, and that brings us to the Super Bowl. So Liquid Death last month ran an ad depicting young kids at this kind of rager pounding Liquid Death and it looks like they're chugging beers and and getting into all kinds of debauchery. And, and unlike that previous work that we just discussed, you know, this is obviously a much bigger investment. It's a much bigger bet, um, but one of your superpowers seems to be kind of operating from this place of creative freedom. I just wonder how, if at all, did the size of that media investment change the creative process for you? And were you able to sort of compartmentalize that pressure? You know, it was funny. We, we shot the spot before we ever even finalized the buy. It was like, we had this idea for like, oh, hey, I think it's finally time for us to run a Super Bowl spot. And, you know, a big reason for that too is like in the beverage retail game, all the retailers review new products like once a year in the fall. So you go, you pitch your brand. Why do you deserve to be on the shelf? Because they have limited space. And if you don't get in, you have to wait another year to be considered. So when you're a high growth startup like us, like you sometimes don't have a year to wait for a miss. So, you know, we knew, hey, we can move some of the budget to ground. We can totally make sense of the Super Bowl buy. And it's like, it's probably a lot more powerful going into retail meetings being like, oh yeah, and we're running a Super Bowl next year. 
especially for a brand like us, that the first perception of it is, oh yeah, you guys are some niche brand for like 20 heavy metal guys. So when you come into that meeting being like, oh, we're doing a Super Bowl commercial to more old school thinking retail buyers, like they're like, oh, Super Bowl, because we can show them all the social data. We've got more followers than Pepsi. We've got, you know, this many, this, like hundreds of thousands of this. And like, they still think social media is like, oh yeah, great, social media, who gives a shit? Like they don't get it. But then you say Super Bowl and they're like, oh, even though there's more people on Facebook every day than the Super Bowl, it's like, they can't, like they respond to traditional things. So sometimes you have to play some of the traditional game to get where you want to go, as long as you're smart about it. So that was kind of our rationale why to do it. And then, yeah, we were like, hey, here's a cool idea for what we think would be a great Super Bowl spot. Because we also knew it was going to have to be different than most of the stuff we've done, because now we have to play by NBC Super Bowl broadcast rules. And they're not going to allow almost anything that we've ever made prior. So we kind of had to like think of something that like would get approved, but still didn't lose the liquid death edge. And that, that we that we've always had and um, yeah like i said if you go on instagram and search hashtag liquid death you'll see tons of people posting photos of their kids drinking liquid death and they've been doing that for a while because it's like oh it's funny look my kid looks like he's drinking a beer but it's just water so that had been going on for a while so i was like oh yeah let's leverage this thing that's actually a thing but make it make it into a cool piece of creative that can run during the super bowl so it was like all right, yeah, let's just take all the tropes of beer advertising and just the big beer advertising and just have kids in there instead of adults. And, you know, we were very particular about the kids can't be doing anything that kids wouldn't already be doing if you just let them run amok in a house. You know, like, they're not going to shotgun beers. They're not going to, like, you know, do things you know like it's not about Get a knife fight yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's not about making kids look drunk it's like the insight was kids being kids actually looks exactly like drunk adults <laughs> you know? uh, it's like they dance really shitty like they're jump on top of stuff like you know they draw on the wall um they pass out just because they're tired. <laughs> yeah, they get randomly um, emotional. You might just cry in the corner in the middle of the party. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. So we were like, yeah, we, we don't need to force anything here. Like, let's just show you know show kids who's doing kid things, but they're drinking a liquid death while they're doing it. And um, yeah, that's kind of how we we got to that. And of course, it's like you know super low production costs on that. Like no celebrities. Like and. You know, I just got a bunch of kids in a house and shot them with like a phantom camera. And it was really just came together in the edit. The most expensive thing for us as part of it was licensing the publishing rights for Breaking the Law by Judas Priest. Sure. That was by far, that cost like three times what the production of the spot cost. Um, but the, and the way that the funny story about that is we wanted to use the original song but that was going to be double the price if you want the master and the publishing. So we were like, okay, we can afford the publishing, but now we need someone to cover it. And Fat Mike, who's a singer of one of my favorite punk bands of all time, No Effects, he's an investor in Liquid Death. I was like, hey, Mike, would you cover Breaking the Law for a Super Bowl spot? He's like, oh my God, I would love to sing on the Super Bowl. <laughs> and, you know, he cut us like a screaming deal and like in literally in like three days he had the song completely covered and recorded 
you know, and he's like one of the most famous punk voice voices. So people who know it would be like, oh, that's Fat Mike. But for anybody else, it'll just sound like a cool song. Right. And uh, yeah, that, that's that's how it kind of came together. Well, even though you're kind of a, sub- a subversive, you know, digital media expert at heart and I mean, it's still just the milestone of seeing your brand that, you know, was sort of born in your brain like five years ago and launched, you know, three and a half years ago with a video without any product, all of a sudden, you know, in such a short period of time to see it on that stage, just, you know, for people like me who barely know you, I still was like, man, I barely know this guy, but I just, I feel fucking proud of him. Uh, And I'm sure everybody who's crossed your path along the way felt the same way. You know, what I wanted to ask you, because it's something, you know, I've kind of grappled with myself, like, so, you know, you're a creative at heart, but now you're the CEO of this incredible company. Do you believe that there's a contradiction in those sort of two identities that requires any reconciling? Like, even after all that you've accomplished, are you comfortable introducing yourself as a CEO? Yeah, I mean, I think, it, yeah, it's a totally real thing that, you know, I've, I've thought through a lot. And I think the most meaningful thing for me about liquid death it's like yeah we get to make cool stuff but like the thing that makes me that really hits home for me is like and it was really the the point of starting a company is we've created this thing that has the ability to generate tons of money that gives us the power to invest in the people and things that typically don't ever get invested into it's like we've been able to hire people from bands who struggle to scrape by in full-time marketing roles. And they feel like, oh my God, I have like a real salary and benefits. And like, you know, I can actually have a real job. Like what other job was gonna give them like someone in a band a job or like, hey, like we can support these artists, like Adult Swim guys like can make stuff for us. Like, you know. We've, I've hired people that were like former bartenders that I knew, like so tatted up career bartenders were our first salespeople. And they're better salespeople than some of like, you know, experienced salespeople that we've hired just because like they're hungry and they're great people people and they go into a Whole Foods or whatever. And they've been dealing with distributors their whole lives. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, don't, like, don't, like, you know, that guy thought, Oh, I'm just like a career bartender. Like, who's gonna hire me? And now they've like climbed the ranks in the company and making like real salaries. And they everybody in the company owns a little piece of equity. So like, everybody feels ownership. And like, you know, if this has a successful exit in some form, like, there's gonna be so many people who, for them, will get life changing money that they never would have got in any other career path. And like, that for me is what makes this so exciting. It's like a bunch of these like counterculture punk folks that have like come together to make this like mainstream success that everyone's going to benefit from. And we've never had to like, pun intended, water anything down. It's not like, oh, we're now we're big. So we're just going to play it safe now. And it's like, no, like we just keep making crazier and crazier stuff. And I think that's the biggest thing. As long as we stay true to the soul of the brand and people ask that well, uh, now that you're going in grocery stores, it's a female shopper. How are you going to change your marketing? I'm like, we've done the most punk stuff ever and it's outselling everything else. Why would we change something that's working? You know, and it's like, you think through things like, I bring up the stat of 
couple years ago, the number two most popular scripted show for women was The Walking Dead. Number one was This Is Us. Number two was The Walking Dead. I'm like, most women in America are watching a show about flesh-eating zombies. But how many female product companies are using zombies in their marketing campaign? Even though there's data there, you know. So, yeah, I think like as long as we if we don't try to like change things or water things down or like like every like we get that respect of both sides. It's like, oh, the soccer mom in Palos Verde still thinks it's cool to give liquid death to her kids and be the coolest mom on the block. But then also like the metal dude in Austin thinks it's just as cool, you know. Dude, they're gonna they're gonna teach the case study at Harvard if they don't already. I mean, how wild is that? <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, the, the other thing, it's like the biggest things that we do is most brands are afraid to give it a really clear personality because it's sort of like, oh well, if you're this, or if you take a political stance or you do this, you're gonna alienate so many people so they make everything very non-committal that's why most brands no one wears the t-shirt because like if you're wearing a t-shirt you're making a statement that like i'm a part of this thing or i believe in what this thing is that's why bands sell tons of merch because they believe in the bands and the lyrics and everything they do so for us it's like we have a very clear personality like if you asked the average person what bands does Liquid Death listen to? What side of the political spectrum are they probably on? Like, there's really clear answers there. For most brands, there's not. You know, what bands does Nike listen to? What bands does, I don't know, Celsius Energy listen to? Um, Nickelback. I think that's always been our thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, don't be afraid to, like, have, like, you know, to be a real person as a brand. And of course you're going to alienate some people, but then the people that love you truly love you and buy the t-shirt. Right. We, we end every episode with the same three questions. Are you ready? Nor normally I give these to guests in advance, but I, I, I dropped the ball here. So let's do the best we can. The, the first question is, Mike, what is the word or phrase of advertising jargon that just makes your skin crawl the most that you just can't fucking stand? Branded content. <laughs> it's the most bullshit thing ever. It's like, oh, you can just make a commercial and call it branded content. You know, it's like, yeah, doesn't mean anything. Man, I'm, and we're entering some stuff into the award shows. And one of them is like a TV campaign. And they were like, should we put this in branded content? And I'm like, well, I mean, it's content that is branded. I don't think that's what they mean. They would like for people to define it that way so they can get, you know, $700 per entry. But uh, it's so funny. I mean, I've done almost 60 of these episodes and not one person has said the same answer twice. Um, the second one is, I mean, the way I ask this to advertising people is what is the most fucked up response you ever got to an idea that you presented to a client? But I'll open it up for you. It might be from your advertising career, the most fucked up response you ever got to an idea you presented to a client, or maybe the most fucked up response you ever got to you know, a potential investor, you know, I don't know, whatever, whatever comes to mind. Well, I'd say this, uh, one of the craziest responses we got from, it was like our sales guy was pitching the brand to the buyer of this grocery store chain out here called Gelson's, which is like a, a you know, 
higher end, whatever. And this buyer, like, you know, we have people being like, oh yeah, I don't know if I really get it. But she was like, in a, you know, in a meeting, was like, I do not like this brand. I cannot even believe I'm having to sit through this. Like, how dare you think that we would put, some, it's like, and we're, and we're like, oh, the, but it's water. Oh, I don't care. And we're in, they're like, our customers will not go for this. And we're like, okay, well, we were in a lot of retailers. Like, you know, is the Whole Foods customer kind of like, no, no. Okay, well, name a, a retailer whose customer base is similar to theirs. Oh, there are none. Our customer is so completely different. <laughs> it's like, and that was, you know, slightly earlier days of it. And it makes you realize how hard it truly is. Like, if you have something truly innovative that's super disruptive, like, just people don't get it at all and it's just like it really is tough until you've got the money and sales to make them be like oh well now i'm not saying no to the brand i have to say no to 10 million dollars over the next 12 months yeah. right <laughs> that is, that's a perfect one and then and then the final one and this should be from your advertising days is called the one that got away you know what was that idea that was on the brink of getting sold to some brand you know it lived in some deck it was supposed to get made and then at the last minute it fell apart but for whatever reason, it lives in your heart. It's so funny. I think I worked on it with you at Crispin. Oh, what was which it? Which was the, doc, the Dr. <laughs> Phil Volkswagen idea. Do you remember that? I do. I do. <laughs> yeah, it was like, I was, you know, junior, fresh out of college. And, you know, I got to work on this, you know, campaign. And, yeah, I remember, like, yeah, we came up with, like, the, the idea of, like, the microsite that was like, oh, Dr. Phil's going to help emotionally counsel you yeah. on how to deal with all the attention you're getting from driving this new it was the cc the volkswagen cc and i remember like they had bought the idea and we were in the production meeting going through like oh yeah he's into it and like here's how we're going to produce it and then he got caught cheating on his wife and then it was in the tabloids and then they killed the idea i remember being so bummed about that <laughs> that's right man i forgot i forgot why that fell apart it was right when he had the the uh, the infidelity scandal uh, would have been good. Dude, you were very generous with your time. On behalf of all, all XCP beers, I just wanna, I wanna congratulate you on all your success, man. You do us all proud. Congratulations on being a father and, uh, and congratulations on your resilience, man. You sort of look at your LinkedIn and you're a guy who, you know, you never found your home. You got kicked around a little bit, you know? And, and so you said, fuck it. And you made your own home and it's super inspiring, dude. So just congratulations on all your success. Thanks. Appreciate it, man. And congrats to you too. Getting to start an ad agency with your childhood hero is pretty fucking cool. Thank you, brother. All right. Uh, well, we'll be in touch soon. And until then, we'll be rooting for you, man. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, buddy. Okay. Later. See you, Mike. Okay. Thank you to Mike Cesario. I'm going to tell you, the guy hit me up on LinkedIn to invest in his company in 2018. And boy, did I fuck that up. Thank you, as always, to JSM Music and the producer of this podcast, my dude, Jeff Fiorello. And as always, if you like the pod, if you're getting any gems of wisdom that uh, is making you ever so slightly better at your job, please subscribe, rate, review, share it with a friend or colleague. Until we talk again, peace.